Well, good morning, Crosswinds, and good morning, Niners fans. It's good to see all the red and the jerseys out here today, and uh, you would think there's a football game on in a few hours, so. Well, a, a, a few years ago, our state passed a law that I was incredibly excited about. How many of you have heard of the California gift card law? Any of you? Uh, as far as I know, we're the first state in the country to, to have this. Uh, actually, when I moved here and found out about it, I couldn't believe it. According to gift card, uh, California law, when you have a gift card and it has less than $10 left on it, a store has to allow you to cash it in and receive the rest of your money back. Did most of you know that? Uh, th th see, now you do. Now, that is not the way it works in the rest of the world. Most places, uh, you have to carry around that gift card with you with like $1.75 on it for months and months, right? That's always actually been my pet peeve with gift cards. I had to keep them with me so they would add like half an inch to my wallet. <laughs> But with this new law, more and more, I'm discovering the joy of gift cards. And, and one of the things that I've noticed is that there are a lot of different strategies when it comes to how you spend your gift card. And I thought for a moment today, we could see what our strategies are here, all right? Um, there are some of us who, when we get a gift card, our strategy, our plan is just to blow through it as fast as we can. I'll tell you, this tends to be what I do with gift cards. Uh, I get a Best Buy or a Target card or whatever it is that somebody gave me a card to, and I spend it all at once. It, it's funny because I'll even buy stuff that I'm not sure I really want. Uh, the same stuff that I would return if you bought that thing for me is a gift, but when you got a gift card, the money is burning a hole in your pocket. You just got to spend it. How many of you would say the blow through it as fast as you can strategy is your strategy with gift cards? It looks like it's seven of us. There's no way that's true. <laughs> I will just tell you in case you're embarrassed. If you do this, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a gift card. It's yours to do whatever you want with. Uh, and then there are some people who use the slow trickle method when they get a gift card. It's like you want to make that thing last as long as possible. Now, in some situations, like when somebody gives you a Starbucks card, you don't have a choice. You can't blow it all in one trip. It's going to last a while. I mean, somebody gives you $25 to Starbucks, you know, it's going to buy you like two drinks over the course of your <laughs> month. Anyway, the slow trickle is another great way to use your credit. How many of you are slow trickle people? I would say it's probably the vast majority of you. Now, besides those two ways, the fast burn and the slow trickle, there are some ways of using your gift card that are just kind of forced on you. Like, like when somebody gives you a gift card that you could never possibly use. Uh, maybe the worst gift card I ever got was from a college I worked for. I, I, I taught a few classes. I was just kind of adjunct faculty. And uh, so at Christmas time, they decided to give out Christmas bonuses. And as a part-time, just teaching a few classes kind of guy, I was not expecting anything. It wasn't even on my radar that they would give me a bonus or a gift. But I got a Christmas card from them. And in it was a $10 gift card to Costco. <laughs> $10 to Costco. Uh, two problems with that. One, at the time, I didn't have a Costco membership. It would have cost me $50 to spend my $10 card. Uh, and then two, is there anything at Costco you can buy for $10? Like, isn't it the land of bulk food? Even gum at Costco is like $18 because you got to buy 30 packs. Last service, I was saying this, and somebody said, you can buy six hot dogs. <laughs> You can buy six hot dog and Pepsis or whatever. So, uh, look, I don't want to seem ungrateful. I'm just saying that's kind of an interesting choice. $10 to Costco. 
Now, however you manage it, whatever you do with the whole gift card thing, whatever your strategy may be, you gotta know the most important thing about gift cards, they are yours to spend however you like. Wouldn't you agree? They're yours. If somebody gives you a gift card, usually there are no strings attached. You can do whatever you wanna do with it. It's totally up to you. That is the most important thing about gift cards. The moment someone gives you one, it is your money. Be as frivolous as you want, manage it however you want. The choices are all yours. You should be accountable to no one. It is your money. Do with it however you see fit. And the reason we've spent way too much time talking about gift cards this morning is because I have a theory, and it is that many of us treat everything we have like it's a gift card. Now, let me just explain that. I, I wonder if a lot of us look at the money we make and the car we drive, the house we live in, we look at our stuff and we think of it as ours to spend however we want, to use however we want. Choice is up to us. We could burn it fast. We could do a slow trickle. It is our stuff. And the reason I bring that up today is because I think many of us are under the mistaken impression that what we own actually belongs to us. Now, let me just call a time out early in this message and say we're beginning a series today called Gas, Groceries, and Grace, Trusting God in Tight Times. And from what Matt said earlier and, and what you just saw in that drama, you're, you're probably beginning to understand that one of the things we're gonna be talking about in this series is the grip that our things have on us or our, our, our desire for things has on us. And, and this could not be more timely because most of us are feeling a squeeze the last few years when it comes to the costs of living and our economy and what it looks like to continue to afford living where it is that we live. Many of the things that we want cost more than they did a few years ago. That's also true of many of the things that we need. Here, the average Bay Area family's electricity and gas bill went up 13% this past year on average. Unless you got a 13% raise, things just got a little bit tighter. The average cost for a gallon of milk in the United States in 2018 was $2.90. In 2022, it was $4.09. That is a 41% increase in four years. Unless your income increased at least 41% over the last four years, things got a little bit tighter. And you have likely been feeling this pinch, and it changes everything, doesn't it? It affects your mood. It affects what you choose to buy to eat. It affects what you do in your free time where you go. It affects your family. It affects how you treat each other. It creates tension. It might scare you, might make you angry. It might make you sad for your kids or your grandkids as you wonder like I do, how they'll be able to afford the things that you've been able to afford. This has an effect on us. And I wanna tell you today, this has an effect on your faith, on your trust in God when times are tight. But what if I could also tell you today that your faith could have an effect on this, that your faith and your trust in God can be the very thing that in moments like these get you through, in fact, strengthen you 
And that God might want to teach you some things that will change your life that can only be learned in tight seasons like this. Okay, that is what this series is about. What God might have for us in his grace when times are tight. Now, real quickly, I have something I need to say. I never would have guessed 20 years ago as a pastor I would need to say. My suggesting that times are tight is not a political statement. Um, We're in an election year, and you're going to hear many voices over the next 10 months suggesting we're in a recession, or we're about to be, or we're coming out of one, and other people who will suggest there's no recession at all, and, and you'll hear voices saying that inflation has gone up, and you'll hear others that say inflation has gone down. And even those statistics I just gave you about the cost of energy and the cost of milk, you're going to hear voices saying that that is the fault of this administration and those who will say it's the fault of the previous administration. So please know, I'm not suggesting anyone is to blame for times being tight. I think the way that the the, the things come about are far more complicated than we often give them credit for. And, And we tend to look to place blame on whoever we're already politically opposed to. If you don't think times are tight today, good for you. So uh, someday times will be tight for you and maybe this will be relevant then. But I have the privilege of talking with many of you individually and I know from those conversations you're feeling the pinch. My hunch is this series will apply to far more of us than it will not. And today what I want to talk about with you is a concept that is incredibly important when times are tight. The idea of what it means to hold things loosely. If if there is one thing I have learned watching economic cycles over the years, what we have one day, we might not have the next. Things get taken away. And my observation is, when you tend to warn people or suggest that what we have might get taken away, that it might not be there tomorrow, we tend to hold it all the tighter. I say that as somebody who have friends friends in this auditorium that have lost their job in the last few years or lost their health care benefits. Here, my confession, just speaking for me, the reality that what I have might go away has not taught me to hold things loosely. That realization causes me to want to hold tighter. There is one thing that has caused me to loosen my grip, and it is my realization, the realization, that what I have was never mine to begin with. And I want to talk to to you about that this morning, because I think if you can embrace this truth, and I, I mean really embrace it, you will find God's grace so that you can trust in a tight time. Now, let me say, when I first heard that concept, it caused my head to spin. Because I like to think that I work hard, I work hard, every penny I get in my paycheck I work for. Over the years, I've told you about the different jobs that I had growing up, and, and I won't waste your time with it again today, but even at the age of 14, in the little jobs I had with the very little paychecks, I thought, as small as this is, it's for me, it's mine, it doesn't belong to anybody else. As a 14-year-old, I thought, I finally have my own money, I earned it, even right now is a dad and a husband. When I look at the check that I get for a couple of weeks of hard work, my first inclination is to think, this is ours, mine, Andrea's. We can spend it on our family however we want to. Point is, when I think of my paycheck, I think I did the work, I own the money. But I'll just be honest with you, the more I look at scripture, the less I see that understanding to be true. 
It's interesting, the Bible uses a metaphor again and again and again to talk about how we handle the money we have and the possessions we have and the stuff we've got. And the picture that it uses is something we, we just don't see a lot of in our modern world. It's the concept of a money manager, what the Bible a lot of times calls a steward. And it's kind of weird for us to read about because most of us just don't have any modern day experience of what this ancient job of money manager was. Just to show you what I'm talking about in the Bible, in Genesis 24, Abraham is this guy who has a lot of money and cattle and possessions, done very well for himself. And he's getting old and God has promised him that he's gonna have many descendants. And so Abraham needs to find a woman for his son Isaac to marry. And we're not sure why, but rather than going out and finding this girl on his own or sending his son to find the girl, he decides to send one of his servants to find a girl. You would think he would send a son to find his own wife. Apparently that's not how they did it back then. Anyway, in Genesis 24, 2, we read that the servant he sent was more than just any servant. Take a look at this. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had. I want you to swear that you will get a wife for my son, Isaac. And again, this is kind of foreign to us because we don't have anybody that we would do this with. The Bible shows us a picture of Abraham who has a guy whose whole job it is, is to manage all that he has, all of his money, all of his possessions. Now, so you know, the servant goes and he finds the girl that he thinks is the right girl. And without having to check with his boss, didn't have to ask, he's in charge, right? This money manager gives her a gold nose ring and two gold bracelets that he had taken from his boss's stash and the money manager decides to do this as a, hi, we would like to get to know you gift. So just even get that, a money manager was not just in charge of somebody else's money, like, like you have an accountant maybe that tells you what to do with it or a, a bookkeeper that keeps track of it or an investment advisor, financial planner that makes suggestions about where to put it and will even put it there for you. Back then, a money manager literally made choices about how to spend someone else's money. Their entire job was spending somebody else's money for them. We have nothing like this, where you give somebody everything, all that you have, and you just trust a person to make wise decisions. Nothing at all. So, a couple things we learned from this passage right away. One, money managers had absolute control over what to do with somebody else's money. And two, they would act on behalf of their boss. So, back to the story of this money manager finding Isaac a wife. He finds the girl and he goes and meets her family and, and he tells her family, I think that she is the one. <laughs> and somehow they all agree and they say yes. And this woman is officially engaged even though she's never met her fiance. And it says in verse 53, then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing and he gave them to Rebecca and he also gave costly gifts to her brother and to her mother. And you see it again. I mean, this guy, getting to make decisions, giving them jewelry, the ancient version of an engagement ring right there. And he's doing it on behalf of his master. I want you to get the picture here. There was a person whose job was to wisely spend what never belonged to them in the first place, to manage the money and possessions and spend them on behalf of their master. Now, we see this job all over the Bible. 
And I, I won't show you every passage, but let me just show you one more where Jesus is talking about this. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a story. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. We see it again, right? A guy whose job it is to manage money for his boss. But this time the story goes. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be the manager any longer. And we learn from Jesus' story another thing about ancient money managers. They were accountable for the decisions they made. That while they had complete control over their boss's stuff, because they were using it, spending it on behalf of their boss, they were expected to manage those things well. Now, this story goes on to give a crazy description of the ways that this money manager cheats his boss, takes advantage of him. And, and where that story goes today doesn't matter so much for what we're talking about this morning. But, but Jesus ends that story challenging his disciples who are listening. And he says this, after telling them all about money managers and a guy who didn't manage his master's stuff very well, he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Makes sense, good moral to the story. But then Jesus says something that blows them away. He says, you are money managers and God is a wealthy owner that you work for. And Jesus uses this parable to explain to them how to trust God in tight times. He explains to them that everything they have isn't just from God, but it's his. That they have a job to manage his things. And Jesus says, God is watching to see what you do with his stuff because it matters to him that you handle his things well. I love the next verse. It says, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you property of your own? And in that verse and the one surrounding it, Jesus says, everything you have is someone else's. It belongs to God. It's not yours. It's been entrusted to you to use wisely. And if you use God's property wisely in this very temporary situation that is this thing that we call life on earth, then guess what? Someday he will give you true riches in heaven. At the end of verse 12 right there, property of your own. So let me just kind of put this in modern terms. The Bible tells us that we aren't supposed to treat what we have like a gift card where somebody gave it to you, it's yours, you can do whatever you want with it. We are money managers, and what we possess that we think belongs to us, it is actually the property of God. It is not just from God. Sometimes when we pray, we say, God, thank you so much for what you've given me. All the things I have are from you. We could say, all the things I have are still yours. Now, just in case you think that what I'm saying is a stretch, that it is not God's, that you really do own the stuff you have. I want you to look at these verses. Deuteronomy 10, 14 reads, I'm gonna have you read part of this with me. It reads, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and this is your part, everything in it, everything belongs to him. 
First Chronicles 29, 11 tells us, yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. I'll tell you, if you look through the Bible, you will not find a single verse that suggests that when God created the earth and he put you and I here, he surrendered ownership to us. And in case you're thinking, well, at least I own myself, think again. One more verse, 1 Corinthians 6 says, even you are not your own. You were bought with a price. See, I, I think many of us look at what we have as ours, like, like God gave us a gift card or, or, or more, like we earned this gift card and it's ours to do whatever we would like to do with. But God has another system in mind, one where he gives us what belongs to him, trusts us with it, and asks us to use his resources the way that he wants them used. And I'm telling you today, if you want to learn how God's grace can get you through tight times, hold it loosely. But the reason to hold it loosely is not because it might get ripped away or you don't know what crazy thing's going to happen tomorrow that will make it disappear. You need to hold it loosely because the Bible tells us it's not yours. You are money managers on a mission from God. He gave it to you to do something with it that he wants done. So the question you have got to ask, and I'll just be very candid, I cannot answer it for you. Wouldn't even dare to try. The question that you have got to ask yourself, what does God want me to do with his stuff? How does God want me to use what he's given me? He has given you unrestricted access to his account. What does he want you to do? to do with it? That is a question every money manager, which you are, no matter how, how little or how much you make, everyone has to ask, what does God want me to do with his stuff? You've got to answer that. And I, and I think the answer is going to be different for every single person. But I want to give you one thing that will help you get started in answering that this morning. To answer that question, I think the first thing you need to do is figure out your salary. Set your own salary. You're a money manager working for God. That's your job. What should you make for it? Okay, let me explain what I mean by this. And to do that, you kind of need to know where the word salary came from. History books tell us in ancient Rome, a soldier was paid in salt, which was used back then as a food preservative, right? They would do a day's work or a week's work, a month's work, and they would get paid in salt, which is where we get the phrase being worth your salt, uh, that means that somebody worked hard and, and earned their money. Okay, let me tell you, the Latin word for salt is sal, which eventually it became troublesome for every person to carry their salt home. And so they stopped paying in salt, thank God, and started giving out real money. And, and you were supposed to go buy your own salt with the money that you got. And that amount of money you got was what became known as a salarium. Would you say that word with me? Can we say it together? Salarium, meaning salt money. The money that you need to preserve your food and support your family and pay for your life. And I think for you to answer this question, how does God want me to use his stuff? The first thing he wants you to do is take from his stuff to support your family and pay for your life. And you need to set a salarium, a salary. Now, I realize that setting your salary is a weird way to put this. Most of us would say, well, the amount that I get paid is my salary. And I guess if you believe that everything that you have belongs to you, that makes sense. But when God owns everything, 
and you're his money manager, your salary isn't everything that you get in your paycheck every few weeks. It's just the amount that you decide to keep for you. And, and, and I think setting your salary can be a tricky thing because what we're really doing when we set our salary is we're figuring out what we need to be able to pay for our own living expenses. And I'll be honest with you, that is tough, especially living here in the Bay Area because what it costs to live here is so ridiculously high. I read an article a few weeks ago and it just outlined the costs of living in the Bay Area and I won't go into all of them right now, but 25% of the families in our area do not make enough to make ends meet. If, if you were to add up all of the things that you need, utilities, internet, groceries, housing, transportation, the list is really long, but it's all stuff that the average person might call a normal living expense. Nothing really extravagant, just having what everybody else has. 25% can't do it. And if you're part of the 75% and, and beyond your basic needs, you just try to live like everybody else around you is living. The average family in California, if they tried to look like everybody else, they would come up over $1,000 short at the end of every month. My point is that, that when setting your own salary, figuring out what you need to pay yourself out of God's money to live off of, the most dangerous part is that if you give yourself enough to live a normal, average, status quo, Bay Area life, in all likelihood, you won't have anything left for you to manage for God. There are times where I've run the budget and I feel like I don't have anything left. And maybe some of you are feeling that right now. You're, you're thinking, I would love to manage resources for God. I would love to hold it loosely. I can think of all sorts of needs and places for it to go. They're in front of me every day. People who are hungry and organizations I believe in and movements I would love to give to and be a part of. But you're saying, I am spending everything he's given me just to make it. There's nothing left for me to manage. God, give me more and I'll do it. And I guess I just want to say, Maybe that's true. It's between you and God. But I know for me, my tendency is to lie to myself about how much I really need. My greatest mistake as a manager of God's stuff is to think that I need more than I do. I did some research this week to see what necessary living expenses as Americans we spend our money on, the, the needs. And I just compared it to how much money we spend on things God might want us to spend it on. Okay, as Americans, we spend one and a half times as much on video games as we do on helping needy people. We spend one and a half times as much on skincare products, what we want, versus the needs of other people. We spend one and a half times as much on chewing gum, three times as much on swimming pools and swimming pool accessories. We spend five times as much on our pets, feeding them, taking them to the doctor, um, clothing our dogs, than we do feeding, clothing, and caring for poverty-stricken people around the world. We spend seven times as much on sweets. We spend 17 times as much on diets and diet-related products, figuring out how to lose weight than on helping people who don't have enough money to buy food to gain weight. We spend 20 times as much on sports, playing baseball or football or basketball or, or, or watching people play sports. We spend 26 times as much on soft drinks than we spend on people who need water. And as I mention every so often, I moved here from living in Vegas four years. You ready? We spend 140 times as much on legalized gambling as we do on poverty-stricken countries. The crazy part about that to me is 
Very few people win in Vegas. And we say, essentially we say, I would rather throw my money away than help someone in need with this. And I wonder, I'm just, you know, throwing this out. It's for everybody, to, each person to pray about. It's going to vary from person to person. I just wonder if maybe our living expenses could be quite a bit lower than what we think they need to be. And then the salary that we take from God's money could be a little bit lower too, and it would free up more for us to be the stewards, the money managers that God intends for us to be. It would allow us to really put his resources where he wants them. And here, that's not just food and shelter to poverty-stricken third-world countries. It could be 10 cents on an encouraging note to the person that lives next door that God has put on your heart. Again, I would never dare tell you exactly what to do with what God's given you to manage. If you listen to him, God is going to tell you. But I will ask you, are you structuring your life in such a way that there's any of his stuff left? See, the reason this is so important isn't just because there are things that God wants to do and he needs your help. It is important because he has an adventure planned for you in managing his stuff. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He wants us to be his money managers because it is a great way for us to be involved in something amazing that God wants us to be involved in. And can I just say as a dad of a teenager, more than I want to give my daughter another $6 drink from Starbucks or another snow cone from the cool new snow cone place across the street, and their snow cones are good, or another ridiculously expensive water bottle. Who would have thought 20 years ago we'd spend money on metal reusable water bottles? We used to call those thermoses, and they were very cheap. More than I want to give that. I want to give her the experience of watching God use her and the stuff that he's given us to manage to make a difference in the world. How much better is that than another hydro flask? I don't know how many of you um, remember the TV show Facts of Life. Uh, it was on when I was a kid. This is a spinoff of Different Strokes on NBC. But one of my favorite characters from this show was this woman named Blair. Do you remember this person? And the actress who played Blair is a Christian. And she was at the time she was on the show. She was 18 years old. And so while she was on the show, she heard a Christian speaker talking about poverty in Haiti. Thousands of starving children, and and she wrote about this experience in her biography. She wrote this. She wrote, My eyes were open to what a privileged life I lived and how totally unaware I was of what was going on in the rest of the world. I was profoundly moved and convicted. And so she went home very convicted and, and feeling like God was telling her to make a difference, to use what he gave her to manage his stuff in a significant way to help solve this problem in Haiti. And she wrote this. She wrote, I could easily live on 10% of my salary. I decided to sell my condo and rent a nice apartment. It wasn't necessary for a single girl to live in a three-bedroom, two-story condo. And selling my luxury car and buying a moderate car would free up thousands of dollars. I had money invested in real estate across the country. If I sold it, the money would feed tens of thousands of children. It was a no-brainer. My zeal was strong. I knew I heard from God and that I was doing the right thing. However, she goes on to say, the people who were close to her thought that response was kind of extreme. And it was the product of guilt feelings that that she was being irrational. And so she said her resolve just kind of broke down under the weights of their arguments, which seemed full of logic and wisdom. And these are her words. 
I abandoned the call, I closed my eyes, and I returned blindly to living a life that seemed to make sense. The danger as a money manager is thinking that the sensible way to manage money is to spend on us, on the things we think we need, that we think are necessary living expenses, and talk ourselves out of using God's money a different way. All right, 10 years later, after she didn't use the money to make a difference in Haiti, she said this, a chunk of it I invested in a high-rise office building that went belly up. Another significant portion was in Texas land that dried up during the oil crisis and eventually was foreclosed on. The house I bought during the California real estate boom of the 80s, I gave back to the bank three years later when the bottom fell out of the market. 10 years later, I'd spent all the cash I had making payments on everything for as long as I could. And at 28, I was broke. And her last comments on this are, God was trying to get me to invest my money in heaven where it would be safe, but I thought it was too risky to take him at his word. Listen, the goal of this morning in this series is not to try and get you to feel guilt about your stuff and where you spend your money. It's not to try and get you to be embarrassed. I really don't want to make you angry. I just want you to know what God says about the stuff you own. It's his, and he wants you to take care of it for him. I, I am not trying to convince you to live more simply without nice things. I, I want to convince you to live strategically. How can you make wise choices with what God has given you to manage for him? Here is my challenge for you, and this is something that is going to help you trust God in tight times. This is a challenge about holding it loosely, okay? What if you went home this week and you talked as a family, include your whole family, kids in the discussion, everyone. What if you talked about what it meant for you to be money managers for God? And then you talked about setting your own salary and how maybe a few things might look different and how maybe you would start holding things a little bit more loosely as a family. And then what if you prayed together and you said, God, what is the adventure that you've got planned for us as your money managers? What's the adventure you've got for the Coley family? What's the adventure? Let me just give you one last illustration and we'll close. Say you have something important that you need to get to somebody who needs it and, and, and you package it in a FedEx envelope and you hand it to the FedEx guy directly. But what if instead of delivering this package or, or taking it to its next stop, the guy took it home and he opened it and he just kept it for himself? And what if when you figured this out, you had enough nerve in you to confront the guy about keeping your package? And what if he said to you, hey, if you didn't want me to keep it, why'd you give it to me in the first place? You would say back, you don't get it. It doesn't belong to you. You're just the middleman. Your job is to get the package from me and deliver it to whomever I want to have it. All right, just because God puts his stuff in our hands doesn't mean we're the end destination doesn't mean he wants us to keep it. And your job and mine is to figure out how much and who he wants us to deliver it to. How are you going to do that? All right, will you stand with me? And we'll close in prayer today. God, we know who we are and we know where we live. And we can just say thank you for the blessings you've poured out on us. But God, let us never forget that the blessings you've poured out on us are not just to tell us how great we are.
there so we can pour those blessings out on others, so that we can pass them along. God, will you help us have wisdom and vision for how we can use what you have given us strategically? God, I do not pray that we are the richest church in America. I pray we are the most strategic church in America at using your things. The most strategic people in this Bay Area. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming today. We'll see you next week.